Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, church. If you're joining us online, we welcome you. We're going to be uh, in Matthew chapter 23 today. So go ahead and get your Bibles and Bible apps warmed up. Um, first things first, happy birthday, Mom. Uh, my mom's birthday's today. And uh, she watches online every week. And uh, yes, you guys know my mom. Uh, you know, she's, she's just a force of nature. Uh, awesome, awesome example of how Jesus impacts the home. Uh, she was uh, full of just love and care for people. She's hilarious. She laughs all the time. Uh, just amazing to be around. I want you to know, even though we already called you this morning, that uh, we love you and, uh, and I hope you're listening, Mom. So anyways, there's that. Then, and these don't bear any relationship to each other, uh, next week we start a new series uh, on the book of Revelation. And um, this artwork is original from our own DJ Iverson. I love it. It's incredible artwork. Yeah, no, amen, amen. And um, so Revelation is a book of great mystery and confusion. And so we're going to tackle it for the next 10 weeks, actually, starting next week. Uh, we're going to lift some weights together. Uh, but there's a lot in there. Again, the, the, the name of the book is Revelation. It's intended to reveal, not to conceal. And there's a lot in there that we can unearth that's going to be a tremendous encouragement, I believe, to us today and how we go about living in the times in which we're living and as we look forward to the day uh, of the Lord's return. Then, today, we wrap up our series called The Games We Play, and we have one final game to play. Trivial Pursuit this week is where we're going to go. Those of you, uh, raise your hand if you've ever played Trivial Pursuit in any way, shape, or form. Okay, good. That's most of us. If you have uh, not played but know the rules, essentially, or what it's about. Would you raise your hand, please? All right, a couple of you. All right, well, then let me give you a brief introduction. It's pretty simple. You roll the dice, you move around the board, you answer questions. And as you answer the questions correctly, you get to keep rolling the dice. And hopefully you land at some point on a space that has a pie on it. You have this little empty pie pan that's your piece that you're moving around the board. If you land on, say, the brown pie and you, you get an arts and leisure question right, then you get a chance to... Uh, go ahead and, and uh, you get the pie. And so what you need to do is answer a question from all the categories, there's six of them, and fill up your little pie plate. When you do, then all of a sudden you win the game. Here's the point of today in general. God cares more about who we are than what we know. Now, I want to be clear at the outset. He does care about what we know. He cares more, though, about our character because knowledge is supposed to be something that we do in service of growing in Christ. It's something that we do for maturity. It's not something that we do uh, just simply for its own sake. Now, having said that, I love me a good game of, of uh, trivia night somewhere at one of the local restaurants. I play with some of you, in fact. We're pretty tough. The NBCers, when we get together and we, we compete uh, around the town at trivia night, we're pretty formidable people. But the reason it doesn't bother me to do so, uh, I think there's a, is because, first of all, the people that we're playing with our people of character, too. They're not just going out trying to figure out, all right, uh, which country is the only one that borders certain things, or uh, how, what's the width of a particular river that's obscure in uh, you know, this part of Egypt or something like that. There's, there's a point to it, which is just the fellowship and doing that with people and growing. Now, those facts aren't particularly germane to developing your character. There are other facts in the Bible that, uh, or around life that actually do help build your character. And to fail to get them or to grow intellectually in the faith will hold back your character. So if a person, for instance, says, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and come to faith in Christ, but I'm not going to read my Bible, that's a mistake. That's, that's kind of choosing ignorance 
choosing not to continue to grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ, which is not what we're after. So everything I say today, I want you to understand, knowledge is a good thing. Education is a good thing. God wants us to grow in our knowledge of things of God through Scripture and discipleship, but he cares more about our character than our knowledge, even as knowledge should help mold our character. Knowledge without character is a trivial pursuit. Character with knowledge is discipleship. So, again, trivial pursuit is a game in which knowing the really obscure stuff in a wide variety of areas will help you out. You win the game by answering questions from a number of categories. Um, it's kind of a board game version almost of Jeopardy. Jeopardy actually precedes Trivial Pursuit. Uh, Jeopardy was kind of formed in the 60s. Trivial Pursuit is around 79 or so. So as a game itself, it's a little bit lower. But both are trivia-style games where you try to, based on the category and based on whatever breadcrumbs they'll give you, try to narrow it down to a very, very slim list of, of things. Ask yourself why we like these kinds of games. I think there's always a part of us that wants to be challenged by things. It's kind of like, okay, let me dig through the old file cabinet up here and see if I can pull it out. But then there's another part, I think, deep inside that kind of likes that when we get the answer right, it makes us feel smart. Doesn't it? If you're sitting there and there's a group of people around and you guys are watching Jeopardy together and the host is going down the category and somebody says, uh, I'll take poetry for $500 and out comes a a clue, and you're the only one that gets it, don't you just kind of want your arm to get longer so you can reach around and pat yourself on the back? Don't you want to just kind of, you know, you can hear pomp and circumstance playing in the background as you answer the question, all those kind of things. Uh, I think there's that piece of it. But Jesus points this out to us in our text today. Not all questions and answers are of equal value. And knowledge itself, aside from cruciform character, does not a disciple make. In Matthew 23, Jesus is preaching, and he addresses the crowds about the Pharisees. He doesn't do this a ton, but he does it some, and when he does it, he makes it count. So he addresses the, them about the Pharisees, who in many ways are his opponents in his ministry. I've jokingly referred to them essentially the, as the Homeowners Association of the Scriptures. Uh, it's, it's a little more complicated than that, a little more serious than that, obviously, but they are focused on obedience to certain to every little aspect of the law. When he looks at them... Jesus sees people that are great at trivial pursuit, but poor at discipleship. Let him explain. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too." What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Okay. He's on one there, isn't he? I mean, he, he's not 
He's not mincing his words. He's not taking it easy on him. He's going after him in a very serious way because what's involved here is very serious. If you have people of influence leading people around as what he calls blind guides, they don't know the way. They're just saying, hey, everybody, come with me, and I'll walk you off the cliff. I'll make you a heretic too. Follow me, and you can be as big of a hypocrite as I am. That's what he's worried about. He's not upset with them for knowing the law. And earlier in the chapter, he says, listen, they are the teachers of the law. Listen to what they say, but do not follow their example. Don't follow their example. So he starts off uh, with this particular kind of notion here. What we know is not as important as who we are. His chief criticism of the Pharisees is not a lack of knowledge. It's a lack of character. It's a lack of character that they camouflage with knowledge. Again, earlier in Matthew 23, verse 3. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they teach. Now, in Trivial Pursuit, the game, all questions are worth exactly the same. Category doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how hard or easy the question is. It all kind of counts the same. All that matters is whether or not you're able to answer it properly. There's no particular value to Uh, There's not degrees of wrongness or rightness. You don't get extra points if the question's a little bit harder. You can get annoyed when everybody else seems to get easier questions than you get uh, for some reason, and I don't know why, but that seems to always be the case when I'm playing somebody. It's like, that's so easy. And then my question is, oh, that's so hard, right? That's how we see things. But the answer to an obscure question with no particular value intrinsically on its own um, I don't want to send the message, as I'm saying what I'm about to say, that um, your character doesn't matter whatsoever, uh, if, if, uh, or I should say, that facts don't matter. They do matter. And Jesus says to him, he says, listen, go ahead and keep doing what you're doing. Your externals are fine. Don't stop doing those. The problem is the stuff that matters more, who you are, what goes on in here, that's a bigger concern to God than the other. It's more important than whether or not you got the right answer. Now, we live in a world in which people think knowing the right answer or intellect alone makes you worth more than others even. Here's what I mean. If you have claims of being an expert, you are automatically right on the subject. Just automatically. You're supposed to be, uh, you know, I guess uh, because they call you an expert, that uh, no matter what comes out of your mouth, as long as it's in your field of expertise, it should be viewed as correct. Almost like a Pharisee who says something on the matter of the law. They're the teachers of the law, so whatever they say must be right. Jesus is saying no. That if you're rotten on the inside, then what comes out of your mouth, it doesn't matter what your head knows, if your heart is corrupt, then you are among the most dangerous people on the earth. Because you have the illusion of being an expert on something that you really know nothing about. So the Pharisees teach and people listen without a lot of criticism. Now, in our world, there are two manifestations of this, at least two. Religious teachers who claim spiritual authority but whose lives are not in line with what they teach, like the Pharisees. Or secular teachers who serve as blind guides for people who believe expertise is incapable of being corrupted by bad character. In either case, what you have is a tragic game of Simon Says going on in which people do what they're told because 
they feel that whoever is teaching them knows more than they do. Now, again, I want to be clear. Expertise is a very, very good thing, and it's necessary in many fields of knowledge. However, in the eyes of God, it is a servant of the heart, not its master. It's good, for instance, to have an educated preacher, an educated doctor, an educated lawyer, an educated teacher. But it is terrible, I mean really bad, to have people of low character in those professions. If you get a doctor who is corrupt on the inside, you get Hannibal Lecter. You get some other doctor who's practicing all sorts of terrible things, who's writing prescriptions they shouldn't write. Now, they know, right? But because this is dirty on the inside, this now becomes twice as dangerous because it has power, knowledge that can be weaponized by a lack of character. If you have a lawyer who is educated and a person of character, there's nothing greater to have on your side if you ever need a lawyer. If you have a lawyer or a judge who is vacant from a moral standpoint, you've got a real problem on your hands. And you're going to see injustice done in ways, uh, in corruption and bribery and things that ruin entire worlds, obviously. Same with pastors or preachers. What a terrible thing that is when they, when they fall. Teachers who lead kids around and errantly or take advantage of them or do things like that. That's what happens when you have knowledge without character. So that's what he's saying to the Pharisees. The answer isn't don't, don't have knowledge. That's not what he's saying. He's saying knowledge is no substitute. The outside of the cup is not a substitute for the inside of the cup. Earlier this morning, I had a bottle of water, and I, the lid was on, and I dropped it in the gutter outside. Now, the lid was on, so on the outside, it's nasty, and I kind of want to throw it away. On the other hand, I don't have another bottle of water, and I need water. So you know what you do? You go rinse it off, and you drink out of it. Yes, that's gross, but I did it anyway. But you know what? The water on the inside was still clean. Now, the outside was filthy, but the inside was pure. Now, had I filled the bottle with gutter water and then polished the outside, drinking that could, I mean, it could kill me, depending on what's in the water, right? What's going on inside is far more important. And what Jesus is trying to say here is that as disciples, we should be growing in our knowledge of Christ until we reach fullness of faith, but the end is not simply the knowledge of facts. Our transformation into the likeness of Christ is the, is the aim. Now, there's another interesting tru- uh, turn on this, uh, and it goes something like this. Uh, it's not facts or knowledge. It's a, it's a knowledge rooted in experience, meaning um, who you are and what you've experienced determines what is true. This is where you get the infamous phrase, my truth, your truth. Thankfully, that seems to be on its way out, but it's still left a stain on society. So here the logic goes like this. If you haven't lived my experiences, you cannot comment or teach on the subject. So it's not really about requesting a healthy empathy, but rather using our experiences as a shield from potential critique. The problem is our experience does not ultimately hold truth within it on its own. What Scripture would say is Jesus is the truth that our experiences need to transform them into wisdom. 
John 18, 22, you can see what happens when uh, stuff goes unchecked. And if somebody just possessing a role means you have to take what I say. And if you don't, John 18, 22, Jesus stands before the high priest. And after one response, he's asked a question. And Jesus gives a response. The guard slaps him across the face. And he says, is that any way to talk to the high priest? Jesus' response is, if I've said anything wrong, tell me what it is. And if I haven't, why are you beating me? The idea there is, well, the high priest, the high priest, how dare you? How dare you? He is by who he is in his role unquestionable. And Jesus is like, no, the truth transcends your role. That's why he's not, he's, he doesn't fear the Pharisees. He's not unwilling to challenge them or push them. Because he doesn't, he knows that the law of God is ultimately supposed to be a reflection of the nature and the character of God. So when somebody turns it into law for its own sake or law as a way to preserve power or uh, a way to uh, make sure that because of their expertise or whatever that nobody can question what they say. Okay, when we use it as a shield in those ways, man, does it become dangerous. They are hitting Jesus in this story because he's right, not because he's wrong. That's how power masquerading as knowledge acts, perversely. As something that oppresses truth that challenges its power, it doesn't welcome knowledge. It doesn't welcome questioning or investigation. What we know is not as important as who we are. Knowledge is a wonderful and necessary thing in the service of discipleship, but as a substitute for discipleship, it's blasphemy and a trivial pursuit. Second, some truth matters more. Not all truth is created equal. Not trivial pursuit, it is. Every question's the same. You need to get all the categories right and all the questions matter the same. There's, there's literally nothing that matters more than anything else in trivial pursuit. No super questions, just questions. Every fact is worth the same, but that's not how it is in the kingdom of God. The Bible is a treasure chest full of God's self-revelation. But there are things that Scripture points out are just more important than other things. There are Ten Commandments. There's a greatest commandment. There's an unforgivable sin. And particular sins and acts of righteousness that are singled out for special condemnation or commendation. It doesn't make, uh, it's, it's not making the, uh, trying to make the small stuff big or the big stuff small to where everything evens out. That's not what the Bible teaches. In Matthew 23, we read it earlier, he reprimands the Pharisees for putting the wrong weight on things. He says essentially, look, you're tithing on every sprout of your herb gardens, but ignore the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. He uses that vivid illustration of you strain out the gnats and you swallow the camels. There are some truths that just matter more. So when we're thinking about, okay, what, God, what truth do I live my life by? The answer for a Christian is Jesus, who embodied truth in its fullness. So I seek not just to know everything I can about Jesus, but to have my character surrendered to the the crucified nature of who he was, the resurrected nature of who he was, that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives in me and that the Holy Spirit is driving my life. So the fruit of the spirit should show on the outside. That's different than saying, hey, look, 
the Holy Spirit wants certain fruit in my life, uh, and so I'm just going to go do those things. And I'm going to not pay attention to the actual cultivation of my character. I'm going to make sure that I'm doing the things that make me look like I'm clean on the inside, which seems to be the case with the Pharisees. All right, let's do a, play a little trivial pursuit, shall we? Let me ask you guys. <clears throat> what is the only country to start with the letter O? Say it louder. Who said that? Raise your hand. Nice. It's right. Oman. Didn't you know that? Everybody knows that. No, they don't. That's why it's called Trivial Pursuit. It's a hard question. I'm impressed. See, I told you we're great at trivia night here at New Vintage Church. We need to get you guys on the team. So Oman, that's the only country that starts with the letter O. Okay, so there's a, a, a fact, or a question, and an answer. Here's another one. Who do you love most? Okay, now, now one of those questions matters more. Oman is interesting, but altogether not going to make a huge impact on my life. After all, I didn't know the answer until I looked it up. And uh, if I'd never found it out, I probably wouldn't have changed my life in any way, shape, or form. But the question of who I love the most... I would hope it would be Jesus, even above my amazing wife and kids. Jesus, he's Lord of everything. So that question and that answer matters a lot. A lot. I teach the Old Testament right now, uh, mostly to freshmen at the moment. And one of the things I try to help them with is avoiding the flat view of the Bible. For instance, there is the largest genealogy in the Bible. It's found in 1 Chronicles. It's nine chapters long of just recording who gave birth to who. Okay, it's not that inspiring. Or you have Methuselah. He died, the oldest man in the Bible, at 969 years old. Slightly more interesting. Also, not as important. It's there to inform or record history, but it's on a different level than you shall have no other gods before me. See, majoring in minors will get you in a lot of trouble when it comes to the Bible. Um, I mean, obviously in the church, this you know, used to be a specialty of the church. I'm thankful our church is, I think... You know, I don't know if you compare yourself to other places all the time, but, but I, I, don't, I haven't experienced as much of this here as I have elsewhere over the years. And, uh, you know, where you would have a, a, uh, a, I mean, just absolutely ridiculously awe-inspiring time of worship, and in the lobby afterward, the discussion came to the volume of the music, who moved the flowers from there to there, um, those kind of things. And you go, did you, did you, were you there? Were you there? And I don't mean physically present. Were you there? Was your heart there? Did you show up to worship the living God? Is that why you came? Because that's the question 
God cares about more than where the fern is placed this Sunday. Or, and I mean, even things that are more substantial than that. Jesus says in Matthew 22, 37 to 40, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and the demands of the prophets are based on these two. He says, everything else is built on those two. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So here's a fact. God loves the world. That's important. It's in the Bible. You know what else is in the Bible? My lanyard. The little ribbon that you use to find your place in the Bible. The age of Methuselah, when he died, is in the Bible. Now, I'm not saying it's all irrelevant. But Jesus himself says, right there, those matter more. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses, Elijah, Jesus. And Peter goes, awesome, let's build a tent, a tabernacle for all three. And a voice from heaven comes and says, no, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. He's more important. Now, Jesus tells us we can learn from Moses, we can learn from Elijah, but they aren't the same. They are not the same. Jesus is just above them. He just is. And Moses and Elijah are the ones that point to him. But the New Testament would say, no, he's the Moses, the second Moses, the real Moses, the real deliverer, the guy that didn't just lead one group of people out of slavery at one particular point in time, but the one who leads all people out of all slavery all the time, for all time. He's different. Same with Elijah. He's not just a prophet. He's not, he's not a guy that is impressive as the, the, the Baal prophets and, and beating them on Mount Carmel is. Do you have any idea what the empty tomb does? Just a different level. And so what Jesus is saying here is that you got to, when you're looking at truth, make sure. It's not saying the other stuff doesn't matter. It's not saying don't care about Moses or Elijah, that he wouldn't say that. He quotes them. But the question is, what do you do with the stuff that matters the most? What's the inside of the cup like? Is it, is it, is it clean? The other night, we had uh, several hundred people in this room, three, three nights ago. We screened a, a movie called Stolen. It's a documentary film about human trafficking here in our city. Monica Dean from NBC News was here. Mayor was here. All these, all these swanky people were here. But the part that I liked was I saw a few hundred Christians here, just people that came out because they were, they were interested. And I'll tell you just experientially, there is something when... Christians are together and they're doing something that is close to the heart of God that they experience together that hits you differently than when I'm in here and I'm watching a movie or I'm in the same room and I'm, you know, there's a concert going on or, or, or a play, even a play my kids are in. When the Spirit of God is at work and we're doing something and thinking about things that are close to the heart of God, it's palpable. You can feel it. It matters more. So let's play some non-trivial pursuit. Category is 
Which is most important to God? Your job or your family? You can say, be careful with your answers too. You answer wrong, your wife may go, or whatever. So how much you earn or how much you love people? Saying a bad word or gossiping? Honoring Jesus or anything else? Right? That's what the scriptures teach. Lastly, the inside matters more than the outside. Jesus likens the Pharisees to dirty cups and whitewashed tombs, dirty on the inside, pristine on the outside. You know, in our culture, we've got many of these. We've got the supermodel celebrity types that seem really happy and excitable and everything on the outside, but then we learn their lives were tragic on the inside and they find themselves lonely or hurting or, or, or uh, you know, doing things to medicate the pain that's inside of them, but they look great on the outside, right? Um, the, the, uh, this passage came to visit me in a special way when I pulled an upset and I drank a, a protein shake last summer. It was probably, it was one of those 100 degree days. It was brutally hot. And I drank most of it, but it was kind of one of those things. It doesn't taste very good when you're drinking it in a hot car. And so I didn't finish it. I left about that much in it. And I left it in my cup holder. And then I think we went on a trip or something, and it stayed in my cup holder. All right. Now, those of you who've ever left a protein drink untenable, you know, not by itself, okay, look, when you open the car door a week later, it smells like the morning breath of Satan. I mean, it's horrible smell. It's the worst smell on the earth. It's so bad that the plastic soaks in the odor so strongly that you often have to just throw the thing away. Okay, it's the worst smelling thing in the world. Now on the outside though, it looked like there's a protein drink there. Somebody didn't finish it. Maybe I'll grab it. Throw it down the You would have been sick for a month if you'd done it. The answer is not to ignore our actions because they don't matter. That's not what Jesus is saying. They matter very much. But they are not camouflage for a lack of character. He's not saying leave the outside of the cup dirty. He's saying the outside's perfectly clean. The inside, though, is disgusting. It is to prioritize the inside which will then be reflected on the outside. So let me ask you a, a few questions to ponder later today, or even as we gather around the table here in a second. What kind of person will the life that you live cultivate over time? Meaning if you continue to live everything the way you do, your habits stay the same, where does that go? What kind of person do you become over time by doing things the way that you're doing them? Paying your faith exactly the same attention you do now, your job, your family, everything gets the same attention you do now. Where does that go? What kind of person do you become over time? Here's another one. What kind of person does your actions say you are? Number three, do you spend more time and energy working on doing the right thing or on cultivating Christ-like character that manifests itself in doing the right thing? Honestly, are you focused on the outside of the cup or the inside of the cup? Sarah Pascucci, 
received a letter in the mail on February 3rd. It was anonymous, and when you get anonymous letters, they're rarely encouraging. Otherwise, people love to take credit for encouraging you. So Sarah Piscucci receives a letter in the mail, and it says, take your Christmas lights down, it's Valentine's Day. Neighbor mad that your Christmas lights are still up. So the letter might have upset her in normal circumstances, but it was devastating to her this year. She just lost both her father and her aunt to COVID-19 less than a week apart from each other, right after the turn of the year. Her father, who lived with her, was the one who put up all the Christmas lights. Did it right after Thanksgiving every single year. So right after that, she became unable to take down the decorations because she felt like she was going to erase the memory of her dad. It reminded her too much of her dad at the time. She got on to a mom's Facebook group there on Long Island, and she said, it was a major blow to the heart. No one really knows what's going on in the, in, inside the house and why we didn't take down the decorations. She shares it, and she said, tells the story. She says, our family's been preoccupied with funeral arrangements, mortgage and utility payments, and just grieving the process of it all. So yes, we haven't got around to taking down his Christmas decorations, but be kind to people because you don't know what they're going through. So the community pulls together. They start getting angry at the person who sent the note. But in early February, the neighborhood started to decorate their house for Christmas and in solidarity with the family. So the whole neighborhood comes out and they start putting their Christmas lights back up again. Now you just know somebody out there was going, how dare they? The neighborhood regulations clearly state that all Christmas lights are supposed to be down by January the 31st. Adventures in missing the point. As Jesus would say, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The rules are there to try to make life better for people in the neighborhood, not worse. These people are grieving, what's the matter with you? Right? It's an everyday example of how we go about our business sometimes the wrong way when we're very, very uh, focused, we'll say. Legalistic could be another word. Not everything matters the same amount. So sisters and brothers, as we kind of wrap up the series, let's remember this, that who we are is more important than what we know, though knowledge is important. Some things just matter more than others. And to determine which is which, we go to the scriptures and the ministry of Jesus. And God cares more about who we are inside than who we are on the outside. May God bless the hearing of his word. As we gather around the Lord's table now, uh, you may notice we move stuff on you a little bit. Uh, we've got tables here on the side. If you didn't get it on your way in, you, at your leisure, just go ahead and do it. I want to read this benediction uh, as we continue to, to worship this morning. So it's from Paul, Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Paul gets it, loves knowledge, but also understands its place. And this is my prayer for us this morning. I pray that your love will overflow more and more, and you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters 
so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. Philippians 1, 9 to 11. We take communion every week here at New Vintage and we try to remember our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that which matters most is death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection from the grave and how he's called us together as his people to be about his work here in the world. So would you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for Jesus and his example. We're grateful, Father, for the gift of knowledge and how you've given us brains, you've given us hearts, you've given us a body to worship you with, Father. We pray that we would never major in the minors. We pray, Father, that we would always lift Jesus above all that we would remember the, the character and the nature of Jesus when we're tempted to make big things out of small things and small things out of big things. Father, keep our perspective pure. And Lord, we also pray that you would keep us from the sin of always thinking that we can just check the boxes on the outside but pay, not pay attention to the inside. We understand the heart matters most to you, Lord, and so... We offer it to you now as we gather around the Lord's table in the name of Jesus who matters most. It's in his name that we pray.